the Rebel Collective Podcast. Podcast is sponsored by Kelly's Bar, Oswald Street, Glasgow. Live Irish music every week from your favourite singers and bands. Check out the Kelly's social media page for more information. How are we all folks and welcome to the 9th Rebel Collective Podcast. This is a monthly music-based podcast that will feature guests of a rebel nature. We'll be getting to know some of their favourite songs and the songs that help shape the artists they are today and hopefully gaining a bit of insight into their background and influences. My name is Coach and our guest this month is Declan McLaughlin. Over Declan's long career as a musician, he's fronted several bands including the world-renowned The Whole Tribe Sings as well as having a very successful career as a solo artist. His music has taken him as far afield as Europe, Australia and America, whether at fronting a band or as a solo act. Not only is Declan a fantastic performer, but he is arguably one of the best songwriters ever to come out of Ireland and was once referred to as Derry's Springsteen. Declan, welcome along. Very good, Coach. I'm well impressed with your introduction there. Thank you very much. It's the first time I've ever got through it in a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to kick the podcast off, we always get right, right back to the beginning. You know, Can you remember your first introduction to music? Oh, I, I, I Well, I kind of grew up in a house where there was a whole pile of music. My dad was... My dad was a bass player, uh, a very, very good bass player. So, and he played in bands. That would have been kind of the, kind of me and uncommon in the house. He worked in factories, stuff like that as well. But uh, d- during the eighties, when I was growing up, mm-hmm. that would have been his main form. Like he was a professional musician, so yeah. kind of grew up here in ho- all types of music in the house. My ma would have been, uh, she was mad about kind of American country mm-hmm. music, Chris Christopherson, and uh, uh, Loretta Lynn, that type of kind of uh, mournful country stuff mm-hmm. but my dad would have been because the band was called Leroy Brown and they, they would have played over here Glasgow would have been one of their stomping points so I kind of grew up in a house where mm-hmm. there was music on all the time Okay, I don't know if you can remember this I played your dad's bass guitar at a gig about 10 yes. years ago and yes. it was the longest gig I've ever done in my life just worried I'm going to drop yeah. this thing or I'm going to bust this oh, thing I, I think my, <laughs> It's an epic guitar uh, Although I'll tell you the, the, the story with the guitar is when I was born, uh, my ma wanted to buy, at the time it was one of them, uh, like a cut, mm-hmm. that fitted on the thing with the wheels and all, and my dad needed a new bass guitar. So uh, there was an argument. I was only a wean at the time, so, but the thing was, my dad got the bass guitar. And the whole joke is, I now have the bass guitar. So I spent the first three years of my life sleeping in a drawer. <laughs> but I now have the... <laughs> You get the bass it's, a, it's a 1969 Fender jazz bass. Very nice, very nice. What about yourself picking up a guitar? Can you remember? Uh, well, I kind of, as a teenager, I was kind of always listening to, like, again, the, the first bands that would have been, you know, probably around the ages of 12, 13 would have been like Thun Lizzy and Black Sabbath. And I kind of was drawn to uh, kind of heavy rock stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... During the early 80s, uh, I seen Christy Moore. Mm-hmm. And I was about f- maybe 14 or 15. Now, all the stuff I had been listening to before, it was stuff that, although my dad was a musician and he wanted us to play music, yeah. it was the kind of stuff I was listening to was beyond my capacity to be able to play. Like, it was all, you know, all the kind of crazy stuff. But uh, we sneaked onto a gig just outside of Sligo and Christy Moore was playing, just on his own. And it was... And create, it was one of them kind of. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do, you know. Like my, my those a kid. It was one of them images where at that point Christy Moore was probably at the best of his uh, his abilities. Like, and there was maybe six or seven hundred people packed on the tent. And as a kid, I hadn't a clue who he was, but uh, just watching him playing and the way they held the crowd, yeah. and I could see what he was doing on the guitar. And it was only two or three chords. I was going. I fucking so I started learning Christy Moore songs and kind of through Christy Moore, uh, I found the Pogues mm-hmm. during the kind of 
mid eighties, and again they played in the embassy, and I went and seen them again. It was when they were at their the top of their game, and that was all stuff that you could kind of you know, it was it was all cardy stuff. And then what happened was I kind of got fed up. I couldn't really do some of the stuff because I wasn't capable of doing it. So I just started writing my own songs, and because I had been listening to Christy Moore, I kind of thought I'll write about what's going on around me. So mm -hmm. that's what I done all them kind of. Right, okay, what about your first time, or your first times performing? What were those, what were those guys like? Was it, was it a band, a solo, or...? Uh, I think probably what would have happened was, the way that fucking all bands kind of form when you're that age, you know, mm. that 15, 14, 15, 16, you're in somebody's bed, somebody else plays the guitar, and you play the guitar, all of a sudden you have somebody who can sing. And Derry being what it does, mm -hmm. it's fucking full of musicians, you know. Yeah, and it, music I was a teenager, when I was growing up, a lot of the people around me all played music, mm -hmm. you know. So I just kind of quickly fell on the... Uh... So what happened was it kind of played, kind of broke my teeth with a pile of kind of folk groups and mm -hmm. a couple of wee punk bands. And then... Uh kind of started a band called the, the, the Screaming Band Lads. Mm -hmm. Again, it was a kind of late 80s and all of the other kind of bands, like there was, uh, uh, what do you call them? A Packer Band were yeah. legendary, you know, sang me. So they were about, and the kind of stuff that they were doing, there was a whole bit, like I, I could never, you know, I, I always hated the kind of wolf tones. I uh, thought they were fake. But uh, I, the Dubliners and stuff like that, and what they were doing, and when I seen Packer Band, they were singing about stuff that was going on around them. So that was a kind of heavy influence on me as well. So again, that was, I kind of broke my teeth playing fucking Christy Moore songs and kind of rebel songs and learning, being kind of, you know, how you set up a PA, yeah. how you run gigs, kind of done all that. So and then I when the, the Screaming Bun Lads started, we were kind of like a punk folk band. We were more mm -hmm. in tune with the Pogues yeah. and kind of doing and doing our own stuff. So that's, and then kind of the, the Screaming Bun Lads progressed on the whole tribe songs. Yeah, yeah. Like we kind of, the Screaming Bun Lads were, were a punk band, they were a folk band, they were, at the, you know, depending on when you seen them and what, who was playing with us, kind of defined the sound. Uh, but what happened was we kind of levelled out then, Tomas McShan, Belfast trumpet player, kind of come up and joined us. So the, the, the Screaming Band Lads, as well as that, there was the peace process, things were changing. Mm -hmm. We wanted to kind of do, do something else. We were still, you know, fairly political, like, uh, but we, cha we changed the sound and we got a record deal. We went to States. We were there from about the kind of late 90s to until I met you. Roughly about then, uh, right? That would have been, what, 2006? It was earlier than that. It was 2003 oh. or four, maybe. So yeah. I had been in the States for a long time and mm -hmm. that's what I, I've always kept going back out. How, how did you end up? Getting like that record contract you're, you're talking about with the screaming bin lads. Uh, we had uh, there was the, the people in the band was me, Paddy Nash, mm -hmm. Dougal McPartland, Tomas McShan, uh, Wally Wallace, and Johnny Nutt. That was the kind of how the how the band kind of mm -hmm. ended up uh, as as a lineup, and everybody contributed under the sound. So what would happen was Paddy had written a song called Happy. Yeah. We had a, we, we had a, like at that point we had a fairly it was you know we had we had brass we had we weren't like all of the other bands that were around that were either kind of punky or grungy. Yeah, yeah. We had a kind of livelier sound. People could dance to us. We were good crack. We'd done a whole pile of drinking. Like we used to drink as much as the audience. So we had this song called Happy, and it was fucking incredible when we played it. It was fucking incredible the way. It, affected people so we went out to the states we got a uh harp we're launching harp lager we're yeah. launching in the states and they wanted a song to use as part of the, the campaign so they heard us playing they heard happy they paid for us they recorded and a couple other songs uh and we got a record deal in the states in on the strength that we went out we were being played all the on the radio uh, and the states <laughs> so we worked for fucking two or three months we were sitting on dairy going so we kind of got our shit together and went out to the and We got a record deal. We were there for about three, four years. Uh, played up and down the kind of the, the East Coast, Boston, Hartford. We were we lived in Hartford for a while, 
and then or when we initially went out, we lived in a place called Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, <coughs> does that answer Sorry, your question? It, it Am I too drunk it, to it, be it, more, <laughs> it more than answers it. <laughs> but see, when people go to America to maybe kind of tap into America and the music industry, they all seem to go to New York or Los Angeles. How did you end up in Connecticut? Uh, or North Carolina? Uh, no, North, well, the way that happened was what, what kind of got the ball rolling at the very, very start was uh, a friend of mine from Derry mm-hmm. called uh, Liam Nullis mm-hmm. was working in a bar in New York called Rocky Sullivan's. Rocky Sullivan's, right? He was the barman and he had the CD that the Screaming Band Lads uh-huh. had put out. I hope he's all kind of, he's get a reference to the Screaming Band Lads. Yep. But there was a Screaming Band Lads CD and the jukebox in Rocky's. This guy comes into the bar on a Monday afternoon and Liam is playing the CD in the, in the jukebox and the guy is having a couple of drinks and says said to Liam, he says, who's this in the jukebox? So Liam explains to him, it's a band called the Screaming Band Lads, they're from Derry, the town that I live in. Yeah. And uh, he's oh, very good, he says, I own a record label. I'd love to, I'd love to hear them. Liam says, because he had been on the phone to his brother, Declan, uh, that we were playing on the Saturday night in the Godour Bar. So Liam was telling this guy who was a, a fella from North Carolina called Clinton McKay Cox, mm-hmm. and he had a record label called Brass Booty that was based in Chapel Hill. <clears throat> but this all happens around Rocky Sullivan's. So Liam explains to him that he's pl- that we're playing on the Saturday night in Derry, and he says to Liam, he says, tell me, how do you, how do you get to the bar? So Liam took out a page, wrote all this information down, and gave it to him. This guy, Mackay, goes, gets a plane, flies to Dublin, has never been in Ireland before <laughs> in his life, right? right? <laughs> and gets a bus to Derry, and on the instructions that Liam has given him, finds a bar that we all drink in. So I knew there was a, the girl who worked behind the bar. Uh, I knew her, and I got a phone call from her. We had been practising. Now, at this point, nothing was going on. Uh, and she said, uh, there's an American guy here in a bar. And he's looking for Deflon with Laflon and they're screaming fun lads. <laughs> so I was like, what? She says, there's an American guy. He's, he's just, that's who he's looking for. So I says, how long do you? So like, this is at the, it's probably the early, early 90s mm-hmm. when somebody's showing up asking questions in Derry was like, this was before <laughs> tourism had blossomed on the fair sunny of Derry. <laughs> You know, it was so we went round the bar and met, and met the guy, but he was this big, huge. He must be about what? What size is McKay? He's that about big lad. He's about six Aye. foot five, six Aye. foot six. He's huge, and uh, so we went round the bar. And I spoke to him, and I thought this guy has been talking to Liam Nullis, mm-hmm. and if he, and Liam Nullis says to him, "If you're ever in Derry, look up these boys." You know, so but he was on to me about having a record label and all. I was all it's fucking rubbish, boys, obviously, yeah. But we looked after him for the weekend. We played on the Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And then me and uh, Liam's brother, yeah. Paddy, we got a car and we drove him around Donegal, took him down around Bonkrana. And he couldn't believe believe the place. So we then come back up and they bar to get him back on the bus because he was going back to Dublin again to get his flight home. So we come up to, up to the bar and uh, Paddy says, drink. So Paddy's getting around a drink. And you know, Mackay says to me, he says, how much would you need to go into the studio? And I was going, well, I'm not really sure. We've never, you know, done anything like that. He says, what can I? I says, well, it's probably, you know, six or seven hundred pound. Mm-hmm. You know, they do the record, I would say just the recording. That's, you know, not been a hundred percent sure. And he pulls out a fucking big lot of cash. A <laughs> <laughs> fucking use. Paddy's coming back from the bar. Paddy's got pints. He's going, holy fuck, what are you doing with? He pulls out a pile of money. He says, look, here's my phone number. And he gave us, I think, a thousand pound mm-hmm. and a pile of euro, a pile of uh, dollars, a pile of euros as well, or whatever. Euros. It was. I know uh, uh, it was all fuck's sake. I'm, I'm drunk. But, uh, <laughs> so, so this guy, he gives us some money, gives me a phone number, and says, "Look, you'll not be able to contact me because his work was he was a merchant seaman. So he used to fly back to New York and get on a boat. He'd be on a boat for two weeks, mm-hmm. but he wanted while he was doing all this, he had, he had this wee record label going." So he gave us some money, we went down and recorded, and we recorded Happy. Harp heard Happy, they wanted to use it. So they were then, they, they were using it here, or they were using it in the States, uh, and we were in Derry, and we thought, there's no point in us being here, they're playing the song out there. So we, McKay took us back out, and we'd done a couple of tours, and then we ended up staying, more or less. We got visas to stay, yeah. and then 
and back home periodically, but it was good old crack. So what, what like was it living in that house in Connecticut oh, for a number of years? I'm not telling you. No, is it one of those? <laughs> not telling you. The less said, the better. Uh, so, no, I was, I was for any band to end up when they all love together. It's it's you know it can be fucking testing. Like it's I think it's mm-hmm. it, 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 like we were all kind of reasonable individuals. We were all yeah. we, you know we could spend a lot of time like and the stitch you're either in the house mm-hmm. eating or you're on the van going to play or you're playing. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time you're trying to rest or you know yeah, yeah. where I because they love out there and do that. You have to stay on the road all the time. So uh, having everybody loving in the house at the same time it meant that you know the, the, a lot of the pressures of having to go to somebody's house and pack them up do, do all that all of that stuff was removed everybody was thinking the same thing we're all eating the same food we just yeah. became and we just went out and played and played and played and played and we got a fairly we had a really really good following but what happened was then uh, we got we were, we had packed a studio we had been touring really constantly a couple of the guys in the band were really really t- tired yeah. so the record level wanted to re-release Happy and the Stits as a single, and this was going to be our big, you know, like the uh, producers fucking big record deal, uh, and nine eleven happened, okay. and everything went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> that was a whole dream things out the window. No, that was yeah. a, uh, We were a, we were a kind of we were a good really really good band. People kind of liked you could dance this. And we were fairly political, and we were good crack, and we drank, and mm-hmm. you know, but we weren't your stereotypical. We weren't a grunge band. We weren't a yes. diddly d band. We weren't a rebel band. We were like we were a f- kind of folky rock band. We brass yeah. and really really good songs. Uh, so we went down really well in the states, and that's because that's where the market was. You know, you could make a living out there doing it, and a lot of bands go out and play. It's, that's how you. I met you. I met you out touring. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so we done that, and then. Kind of wheels went come off the but like at, the, at that point too the record industry was changing the whole digital thing was coming along uh-huh. and all of a sudden the record industry stopped being the record industry so we were at the top end of that so then all of a sudden there wasn't you know record labels weren't signing anybody they weren't you know uh, everything was online uh, there was there was no like the, like. For touring bands at that point, if the record industry had been what it was, we would have been able to put out a single. Single would have driven the CD sales. Mm-hmm. CD sales would have meant we could have toured more. We could have got more money. So that, that that's how you progressed. All of a sudden, that's the the input that that the, the money brings for CD sales and all that that all disappeared. So it was very hard financially to keep a a, a big operation like that on the road. Is that kind of how it came to an end then? Aye, aye, aye. We all would get, you, you know what it's like. If you're yeah. touring constantly, you kind of, you end up living in a van. I'm being very fucking morbid, aren't I? <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> not that it's fucking great cracking when you're at, you know. It's, <laughs> uh, that's just ups and downs. Yeah, it's, it's, ups, it's ups and downs. But you end up loving in this kind of, a strange world where you're constantly on the move. Yeah. And, you have a bag, you end up loving out of a bag. You don't, when you go to buy clothes, you buy black t-shirts, jeans, stuff that can be washed easy, put it back under a bag. You don't, and, and, but it's, and we done that for four or five years and it was fucking, it's, the real world stops exhausting. Yeah. You know, you end up loving in this bubble and what happens is that's why there's a lot of alcohol abuse, there's a lot of, you know, just the fact that you don't get any sleep, your, you know, your night only starts, or, you know, really when people, when their night is ending, you you still have to strap down a PA. You still have to you still have to get home. You have to deal with the managers. You have to do all, all that. So it just becomes this repetitive. I'm sounding like I was shit, but it was great crack. <laughs> great crack. And then I started going out and doing it on my own. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody to answer to. <laughs> I, because but because I had made up that many or I had made that many friends in the states yeah. over the years that we had been there. After the band broke up. I thought I'll go back out because there was there was twenty gigs that I could get between Philadelphia and Boston, mm-hmm. and go out and do it on my own. So that's what it, that's what I done, and I kept on writing and recording and putting out CDs. Did uh, the whole tribe sings of any <coughs> success in Ireland? Understand you were you were in the charts, the Irish charts. The last time I no, I was in the Irish charts there. I went in number twenty two, and. Uh, Irish Church with that song, Rise. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm probably too drunk now to be doing this. <laughs> this is all very fucking heavy-handed. Uh, I'm only sounding like a door cunt. <laughs> so the whole thing's <laughs> let's, 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 let's do this. <laughs> let's do the funny like, stuff. Let's now. talk about something morbid. To be talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll never guess who's dead. Quick day, got Rosie. The whole tribe, they understand they got to number two in the charts with one of your big hits. Can you tell everybody who got to number one? <laughs> Can you remember? Oh, it was a born again Christian crowd. Is that the, yeah. <laughs> Did the Pope not release oh, an album? No. <laughs> oh, no, no, that was that. Uh, do you want to start that story again? I was trying to set you up earlier on, No, that was the Screaming Band Lads. Oh, was, I thought it was, was a, No, it was the Screaming Band Lads. We, we put out a CD called Giving Up the Message. Mm. No, it wasn't Giving Up the Message. It was Help Yourself. Now, the church, <laughs> this is the funny thing, was they had this, the, what I called the Occupied Six County Church. So it was all this kind of local stuff that yeah. would sell on it. So all of a sudden we put out this CD and because we weren't getting played in the radio, we weren't getting all that, but any of the, the shops that we put the CDs on, we were selling 10 or 15 or whatever it was a week. But because of the rest, of, there was nothing else local. So all of a sudden we were number two in the fucking, the Northwest Church, and, or not the North, the, the Northern Church. Uh, and I think it was one of the, one of the radio stations phones and these have sold this many CDs do you know who's number one because the Pope had released the rosary on CDs <laughs> <laughs> it was a fantastic CD though <laughs> 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 thanks <laughs> the rosary or the screaming band <laughs> so uh, anyway after the the whole tribe things split up did you, you take a wee break from it all or did you keep on playing or? Uh, I think when you do it because it's, I had started playing music when I was probably 14, 15 mm. uh, when you're doing it that long you, 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 know, you might step out of one part you might stop recording but you'll still keep playing live or you yeah, might stop yeah. playing live and you'll keep writing and recording so at different periods throughout the, you know, my career I'll stop doing what I do for a wee while just to give myself a break mm -hmm. from it and what, what I've done was over the last couple of years I'd kind of written uh, maybe 10 or 15 songs and as you get older and you have to work and pay fucking bills and do all that kind of shit and then if you're trying to organise gigs it all cuts under the time that the bit that I like doing is writing songs mm -hmm. I don't I don't really f like f see the term and stuff like that I don't really don't I don't get that much enjoyment out of that anymore. But I enjoy writing in the house, so that's primarily what I do. And then if I want, if I put a CD out, I'll go. I can do a pile of gigs in the states. I can come out and do wee fly gigs like this, sell a lot of CDs and sing songs. Well, just just to stay in the topic of songwriting, do you feel this is kind of way expressing yourself, or is it just a hobby oh, or no. a pastime? No. Or? no. Are we getting too deep? Are we getting too deep? Uh, <laughs> No, the reason why I started writing songs was I couldn't really do anybody else's. Mm -hmm. So I thought, and because at the time nobody else was writing, you know what I mean? I was writing songs about glue sniffing, yeah. about Bloody Sunday, about. So I was, I was doing not, you know, Billy Bragg, Christy Murr, Paul Brady. What, what I was doing, I was taking all those different influences that I was kind of listening to around me, trying to put them together, uh, and. And sing about dairy, mm -hmm. so that's what became popular. The fact that it was I was, or that what we were doing was singing about the world, the world in which we existed, mm -hmm. which related to the people who we were playing, playing. Mm -hmm. So as we kind of learned our skills around that, you kind of learned the, you, you try to develop a universal, uh, you know, themes that everybody can, you know, they can kind of tune on mm -hmm. but you can do it in a kind of colloquialized way. That sounds real. That's what you're. That's what you're trying to do in songwriting. Well, see, with your songs, when you, when you listen to them, it's because it ain't making any money. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't making me any money. Maybe after this podcast, you make oh, a <laughs> But your songs are quite unmistakably dairy when you listen to them. Hmm. It's dairy songs, dairy people written by a dairy man. You know, do you think if you were for Glasgow or London or Dublin or anything. Songwriting process might have been a wee bit different. Uh, you know? Oh, of course it would be because yeah. what, what I'd done was draw upon. Because you can imagine as well, and I'm not, 
when I was growing up, when I was, you know, I was born in 1969 at the very, very start of the Troubles. Yeah. So the world that was going on around me, I grew up, I, went, I lived in a place called New Baldens most of my mm. life, which if anybody knows wasn't, it's not a sweet place to be if you're a chef like. Uh, so all that was going on, there was a war mm. that was going on that was affecting my family, how I was, I was a Catholic growing yeah. up on it. Uh, and then when I became a teenager and I started realising what was going on, I was also listening to all this other, you know, the, part of my life was the music that was going on at home. Yeah. And then outside of that, there was this kind of, and as you're a teenager growing up on that, you know, bloody Sunday, you, uh, you see what's going on on the street, the army, the helicopters. Uh, so what I done was I just tried to take what was going on around me and translate it onto to songs to probably try and figure it out myself and also try to play a bit of music. Okay, well, I have a wee, uh, a wee Jesus, quote here. There's no fucking two pages. Uh. I have a quote. <laughs> I'll quote this quote. It was, uh, McLaughlin has been described as one of the most important songwriters to emerge from the north of Ireland in the last 30 years. As a driving force behind the screaming bin lids and the whole tribe sings, his songs have become a soundtrack to a generation of young people who have grown up in inner cities surrounded by unemployment and conflict. One of the most important songwriters to have heard. <laughs> Is that quite a heavy burden to bear? No, that's kind of... You don't listen to that shit, there. That's, uh, that's somebody writing stuff nice. Who says that? I don't know. Probably me says that. You're probably reading my fear. Was it Eamon McCann? Uh, no, Eamon says, nice, Eamon says nice things about everybody. <laughs> uh, no, I, no I, it's, it's just what I do. You know, I, I write... Like I say, I have tried to absorb all the good music that I kind yeah. of grew up listening to. Like, like I say, my father was a musician. So when I was growing up during the 80s, my father was listening to what was going on in the church. He was mm -hmm. in the like a, They were almost a show band. They were like a kind of wedding band. They would have listened to the songs that were being recorded on a Sunday night in the church. They would have practiced on a Tuesday night. Yeah. And they would have known whatever the top, you know, they, were top, they, they played the top 20. Mm -hmm. And the top 20 keeps changing. But... So I would, I would have been listening to all of the mixture of music that was going on at that. And then, like I say, trying to... I, ju I just took the skills that I was learning there and took what I was seeing that was going on around me and tried to just sing about it. Mm -hmm. I was never that fond of doing other people's songs because yeah. I'm not really that good. <laughs> <laughs> I've just found out what I'm good at and I just keep doing that. <laughs> and you had, you had a song, Rise, and it was used couple of years back for the mm. anniversary of Easter Rising. How, how did that come about? Uh, it's a song, and as I say in the video, uh, there's a, a, a player on YouTube. I say I started writing it about 1986. Right, okay. And I had finished it the night. With me, and you'll know this coach, you know me a long time, mm -hmm. my songs are forever changing. And when I wrote that song, Initially, it was kind of more like the song that I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. But then there was this the the copy that I gave to Gary. Yeah. And it says, "Look, here's a song. I think it would be good. Use and that you recorded on as well. And you've done it completely different. And it is. I'm, I've rewritten it again, and mm -hmm. I've done it. Uh, and it was. Uh, I was asked to play it. Of there was a, there was a big shiner ding dong, <laughs> and the the wasn't the Ardes Shared Collier. And they had, I was in Derry, they wanted to make a big deal of it. Mm -hmm. But they had asked me about six weeks before, and I says, let me think about it. So about four or five nights before the event happened, one of the organisers phoned me and says, look, you know, this is, it's going to be a big event. Uh, do you want to do a song? So I just automatically thought, right, all right, I'm going to do this. And I says, I, and at that point, I didn't really know what I was going to, what I was going to sing. So I kind of thought what the event was about and what was going on around us and, uh, the fact that we never celebrate what we ha what we have achieved or celebrate what has what has happened, uh, so we kind of rejigged that song and went out and played it. So uh, and I got that good a response. Uh, that was the last time I had seen Martin McGuinness, but okay. and that's and the song for me that the songs kind of linked to that as well. Uh, so the song got that good a response. I went down and recorded it, and it went to 22 in the Irish Church without any radio play, without any newspaper <laughs> coverage, without a word printed. At 20, 22 in the Irish Church, uh, so that was kind of fun. Maybe and it's up online. It's like I think yeah. at this point it probably has about maybe 
20,000, 30,000 yeah. views. Is this on YouTube? Aye, and that, that to me, he's, you know, it's not like, I know, I, I read this stuff, or you see stuff on the internet, and it's a million and a half views, and think, I'm a fucking somebody who watches me 20 times, I'm delighted. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a wee listen to it. <laughs> you've had a million projects on the go but the one I'd be most familiar with was when you got together with Shanaki and the Unity Squad <laughs> and, and Gary Og. so what, what was the, the purpose behind this you know, I should probably question you about that because you probably remember more of that tour I think I, I do I. <laughs> uh, uh, we uh, <laughs> there, but that, that, there was a whole culture going on around Rocky Sullivan's mm. at that point you know that was you know, through the kind of lit, probably lit eighties, that kind of community of people started assembling somewhere around Chris Burnham, Black yeah. Forty Seven. So the Rockies was born out of that, and there was a lot of us, a lot of musicians. Any of us who went to America, Rockies was somewhere that we all kind of gravitated to mm-hmm. because of who we were and the music that, and the stuff that was going on in the bar. So, uh, so I got to know Chris. Probably through I through that. Oh Jesus I because Chris I remember we went out, we were touring with the whole tribe sings. We had about six or seven gigs in New York and we had nowhere to fucking stay. Mm-hmm. I had never met Chris Byrne before, but we knew about Rockies and Chris had knew Chris knew about the band as well. So I think I went to the bar and because it was one of the places we were playing, and I said to Chris, Look, we, there's six of us. We have we fucking nowhere to stay. Can you know, can you get us uh are we still going? Uh, Chris Bourne gave us the keys of the bar. Sleep in the bar. And the whole lot of us. I was like, a, <laughs> like one of those suicide cults. You, you had a commander at six o'clock in the morning, there'd be all these dairy fellas all lying stretched out sleeping in the bar, sleeping bags. and So that was how I got to know Chris, and he was always really good to us. So we kind of became part of, or I did anyway, became part of that kind of community that was going on. Mm-hmm. And because I was spending more and more time in America, so then it was Chris who had said to me, you know, do you know Gary and Coach and the boys? And I was up. I know who they are, but I don't know. So we went out then. We'd done the tour. There was us, me. Uh, was it uh, Owen? You played with Owen? Owen O'Doherty. Aye, aye. Uh, Owen's has an incredible career of his own now. Yeah. He's doing yeah. really well. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Sh- Shanaghy. Mm-hmm. Who else? Was, was there not a couple of bands played with us at the start of the tour as well? I think we scared the them The Ruffians, the Ruffians. The Ruffians, that's yeah. right. Uh, and then they were kind of, they disappeared. But mm. no, that whole tour, and then that was how I got, and then <coughs> I think the link between Gary, yourself, and what was going on then in Derry, mm-hmm. then you started coming out, and when you were coming to Derry, then he's ended up staying with me. I'd have been doing the stuff around the bloody Sunday weekend, and yeah. he's going to come over, and he's come over for Easter, and it became so. To stay in the topic of Rocky Sullivan's, and it's kind of more a sort of yes no question, but did you or did you not fall asleep spooning Gary Og and Rocky Sullivan's? <laughs> <laughs> I think Chris Burn was involved in that as well, was he? Not? Some of the stuff, honestly, God, some of the stuff that went on. And, and Rocky Sullivan's but it became, it became like a haven for us all Aye. you know and, I, I, I and, it, and what also happened as well was every time I went out I brought a certain group of people with me mm-hmm. and they then gravitated or you were saying to other people look if you're in New York Rocky Sullivan's is a bar mm-hmm. and 
It was a rough shop. It could be a rough <laughs> shop, but you never know who you'd run on date. And it was always, and like I say, Chris and Rachel and Jay, all the people and uh, all the guys who worked on it, they were all really good to us as musicians. Oh, I, yeah. I think that was probably part of it as well, that we were going out there to play and they knew how hard it was or, and they looked after us, you know. They always pit us up. They, you know, some of the stuff that we have, but mm. some of the stuff that went on at Raggies. <laughs> That would be a movie on its own. It would be, it would be. Uh, so going to kind of start to wrap this section I'll tell up you a bit. great story about Raggy's Hall. Oh, hit me, hit me. I know, <laughs> I have a great story about Raggy's Hall. There was the year before I met you, I was out for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and as bad as it could get, right? But everybody had says, Shane McGowan's in New York. Shane McGowan's in New York. Shane McGowan's in New York. And I was going, I'm going to stay in fucking Rocky Sullivan because if there's anywhere in New York he's going to end up, it's going to be it's going to be on here. So we sat in the bar drinking, drinking, drinking. Four o'clock, the door of Rocky Sullivan's <laughs> opens and there is the silhouette of Shane McGowan. And he, <laughs> there was the three steps. <laughs> he just fucking collapsed <laughs> That was him. That was the end of a gun. They put him in a corner and he was fucking passed out all night. There was my hero. <laughs> so did you get a chance to actually speak to McGowan or? Oh, no, no, no. That was <laughs> no, that no, no, no. And all the times I've ever been in his company, he's always been completely inebriated. There was no absolute <laughs> communication with him at all. And I always thought, uh, that's, <laughs> that's fair game. <laughs> so over here, a long musical career there's obviously there'd been ups and downs uh, is there any regrets along the way <clears throat> no I don't do, I don't deal with I don't deal that's a mm -hmm. regret isn't something I, I ponder upon we'll play the height always you know, positive oh I, I but but uh, honestly God you know if I try to I grew up in the middle of the troubles and music gave me something that was uh it took me away from the not to it took me away. It was the reality in which I was living on mm -hmm. was fairly bleak. There was a war going on. I was lost in family members. Uh, you know, all that shit was going on. You were being discriminated against. This there was a, you, it became a normality to you. But and then I got this chance through music to go and do and visit and you know that's what I always enjoyed. I don't I'm not it's not as easy anymore. I don't have the same energy for it, but uh, they go and play in Berlin. They go and play in places like Rostock or New York. Like I played CBGB's. Mm -hmm. I played the, the, the Kennedy Center. Like we did, we, we were, we had kind of got to a point where live music was still an important part of the kind of, the, the, the kind of, t you know, experience, the, the experience of growing up. And we kind of grew up with a generation who wanted live music and a bit of crack and stuff like that. And at home, they they wanted the kind of young people around, the, the type of music that we played. It wasn't, like, I don't mean like it wasn't dirty, but it wasn't it wasn't your standard rebel stuff. It wasn't, we weren't a grunge band. We were a band that we wanted people to come out and dance and enjoy themselves. But also we were singing about stuff that they could relate to, whether it was fucking glue snuffing or taking drugs or people getting banged up or people getting pregnant and stuff like that. And we'd done it in a kind of way that... At, what we were doing was we were kind of tr trying to celebrate working-class life. And that's that. I think that's what worked. And so we just... And that's what we were good at. Both me and Patty were the kind of lyric writers with one side of the band. And then we had a great rhythm sec. We always had a great rhythm sec. And we had a number of drummers and a number of bass players. And then Tomas McShann's horn playing. And it kind of gave us an age, it gave us a different sound. But it was also we had a good vibe about us. And we were good people as well. You know, we we mm. you know um, we didn't act like all our bands. We just we were there for about a crack drink. You know, we were that fucking surprised that things were going that well. <laughs> we were like just going, fucking mother, how did we end up here? You know, in a fucking swamp party in North Carolina. You know, <laughs> Or Spoon and Gary and Rocky Sullivan. <laughs> How do you wake up? The, we wake up in the morning. Why the fuck did I end up here? That tour was <laughs> that tour. I had been on. I had been I'd, not that I had been drinking away a lot, but you know yourself when you're out to, when you're doing, when you're living that lifestyle. Alcohol is the only or playing live music. It's the only. It's the only job that anybody has where people expect to see you with a drink in your hand. 
you know, the money you drink. Oh, aye, yeah, that, that, yeah. And the drunker you get, the more it is for a show. And we kind of had taken, you know, good songs, but we also had a kind of persona of we drank and drank and drank. And it used to be a joke. Let's go out and see if we can get as drunk as the whole tribe sings. <laughs> but we, and we could still do what we had had to do. But it was more of a party, and you know, people enjoyed it because as well as that, they were loving those kind of same lives that we were, were living and mm -hmm. wanted a break from that. You know, I kind of think for a lot of people who were loving in uh, Eye of the Storm, listening to the Wolf Tones is not what you wanted to do on a Friday and Saturday night. You know, because it was, it was the fucking, that's what you were dealing with out, out in the streets. When you went out on a Friday and a Saturday night, you wanted to hear stuff that you could fucking go, yeah, <laughs> fucking drinking and enjoying ourselves. You know, he's fucking singing songs about you, you know. Uh, so, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> meet me at the pillar sun. Please meet me there at noon. I need you, brave young Irishman. There's something we must do. This podcast is sponsored by Kelly's Bar, Oswald Street, Glasgow. Live Irish music every week from your favourite singers and bands. Check out the Kelly social media page for more information. See, so you brought along three songs to have a wee quick gab about that maybe influenced you along the way. Uh, tell us about your first song that you picked. The first song I have picked is MC5, Kick Out The Jams. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why I put that because for one it's a really important song, but secondly it was uh, when I was growing up when I was a teenager I was listening to a lot of kind of you know punk rock and he uh, heavy metal stuff uh, and I used to try to get records that would annoy me man and I. <laughs> you know <laughs> that could I could put because the house was always full of music it was we always had a, a good stereo and. Music was on all the time. It wasn't a lot of TV. Music was on all the time. And we, as kids growing up, we were allowed to put our music on as well. You mm -hmm. know, so you'd buy records. But uh, so bands like Black Sabbath and the Sex Pistols and, and all this kind of stuff. And I can remember putting stuff on and trying to annoy my dad. But my dad was a musician. He'd, you know. So uh, one of, uh, it, was, it was a Black Sabbath song. And at the end of it, Ozzy sings, You Bastards, right? You know, so it was a Sunday afternoon. So we put the music on. I knew at the end of the song he sings this, you bastard. And when I see the reaction, out of my man and dad, we're all sitting around it for Sunday dinner. And there's absolutely, off my man and dad, nothing. So my dad goes, what do you hear this? And he, puts, he pulls out the MC5, kicking out the jam, puts it on the record player, and the first line is, kick out the jams, you motherfucker. And the band kicks off. And I get a, when I think back on it, my dad was going, there's nothing that hasn't, you know, musically, there's nothing, that's not, yeah, I've heard this before, it's not, you're not going to shock, shock me. And the whole way of all this, the music that I've always listened to, you know, we all the songs I have picked are probably a reflection of the music that my man and dad were listening to. Mm -hmm. The stuff that I hated as a teenager, you know, but now you realise, ah, dad, the fucking record collection, I still have a lot of the records. And it's the stuff that I go back to. Uh, I remember after trying to get my daddy listen to, I think it was Crazy Train or whatever the, the album I had bought. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. My dad pulled out Crosby, Stalls and Ice and Young, puts a record on, and I'm about probably about 14, 15. He says, what do you hear this? And he puts on Crosby, Stalls and Ice and Young. Through, halfway through the song, I'm going to my dad's happy shite. That's happy shite. <laughs> I'm not going to that. And he took the record off. And he says, you don't realise it yet, but someday... You'll realise how important this record is. Yeah. And it was only years in later on, I ended up getting the record. And just, you know, because my dad says this, me going, I fucking to me. And I put the record on and was fucking amazed. And I was going, my dad was, you know, all of those records that my dad had were all, you know, like, you know, Chris Christopherson, you would have police records, there would have been ELO, Beatles, the Rolling Stones. There was a really, really good eclectic mixture of music, uh, and also whatever the charts was playing was playing at the time, and then all the kind of country stuff that my ma liked. So MC Five, and because of what they kind of stood for as well, they were kind of they were the, I think they were the kind of real first 
punk band. Got the jams, motherfucker! song you brought along for us Christy Moore the time was called yeah. uh, like I say I have throughout my life Christy Moore is somebody who's kind of been a constant he's always been a kind of, he's been my kind of Bob Dylan and I think that's one of the songs one of probably the very first songs that I heard him singing on record uh, and it, it moved you know it was one of them kind of just when acoustic guitar and him singing the song and what it meant and all, all you know, I think probably Christy Moore is one of the people who were the he was the first person who I heard articulate something that I could relate to. Mm -hmm. So that's not not only is an important artist, but I love that song as well. The time has come to part my love. I must go away. I'll leave you now, my darling girl No longer can I stay My heart, like yours, is breaking Together we'll prove strong The road I take will show the world The suffering that goes on clasp that holds my hand must loosen and let go and yeah third and final songs God Save the Queen by the, the Sex Pistols uh, the reason why I picked that was see during the kind of uh, the late 70s the 80s and through the 90s you had foot patrol you had army foot patrols that just emerge you know they'd, you'd, fucking see, you'd be running on them all the time but <laughs> What used to happen was in came out with Craig and the bog and Chantal, places like that, people used to put their stereo or a record player up onto the window. So when uh -huh. the army were coming down the street, people used to put the speakers out on, on the thing and they'd be blasting out the Wolf Tones or the Dubliners or Christy Moore, yeah, yeah. fucking get, getting on them. I had a mate called Fatty Kerlin. Fatty Kerlin was the first punk I ever knew, right? So oh, the army's coming up uh, Beechwood Avenue, coming up and there's, you can hear the fucking people blasting music at them. And Fatty Kerlin, he's got the two speakers up in the window, his airway drop. Sex Pistols, God save a queen. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that was. So that's why I picked it for Fatty. Is part of the podcast. Let's go. Let's do it. Why do you play like, your particular type of music over other genres? That's the only thing I can do. Simple as that. Simple as that. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> do you have a favourite rebel or political band? 
Packer Band. Hang on. Packer Band. Favourite rebel or political song? There's a whole pile. A couple of Bob Dolan early songs are very good. A couple of Shanagies, Damien Dempsey. It would be hard to pick. Put in the spot a wee bit for that one. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? That's not a fair question to ask somebody my age. <laughs> fucking next, more, next question. <laughs> <I'll go ahead. laughs> Where do you see rebel music in ten years? Uh oh no, rebel music. I don't know. I don't ever. I don't think like that. I always think. I, I kind of. So it's a working class thing. I kind of always think in the present, mm-hmm. and that's I, where things are going. Uh people will always be rebelling until. There's a utopian society. <laughs> people will always be rebelling and young people will express themselves through the art of music. So there'll always be rebel music as long as there's an oppressive society. Is, it, <laughs> <laughs> is there any big gigs or any recordings coming up that we can look forward to? Mm. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at the minute. No, no. I, I, I to tell you what, I, I'm kind of getting all the stuff I have kind of done. I've done everything that I kind of really wanted to do. I kind of written a pile of songs, and I wanted to go on there. Perfect. You know, a lot of the times that I have always kind of recorded, I've recorded at home, mm-hmm. and I've kind of tried to do it. Means of production, all that kind of stuff. Try and do as much of it yourself as you can. And I think with the last album. With the whole tribe sings, Dougal does a fucking wonderful job of what you know. He put his heart and soul on that as well. But uh, that was as good as we were going to get at a recording level mm-hmm. for what I want to do. And then I had written a pile of songs, and they kind of keep playing, keep writing, have a life, try to get on with all you know the, the years of social activity that as as we as people who play in bands know. You know, you must weddings, you must christenings. You must, you know, there's times you're, you're playing on your birthday or when it becomes a livelihood, it become, you know, to, to, to make a living at it, it takes, it takes a lot out of you. So over the last wee while, I've kind of thought, to myself, I don't really want to do that anymore. I enjoy going out, you know, and doing the odd gig and stuff like that. But uh, I've kind of got to the point where I'm not really going to plow a pile of money and do a professional recording mm-hmm. and then try and recoup, recoup that. Uh, so I'll just probably keep on doing what I'm doing. So they ought to be gigging here and there. Uh, uh, you've brought along two songs to play, kind of a wee live alone session. Yes. So what, what have you got for us? Uh, first song is Jesus, We Used to Be Friends. Uh, I wrote it about a year ago and it has went down well. And I enjoy playing it. It's an easy, it's only three chords. And it's one of the first songs I kind of started playing harmonica on. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah. Your second song? Uh, Jailbird is another song that I've written recently. Uh, it's just about people trying to get out of that spiral of and out of jail. If you go to jail as a kid, it's very hard, you know, to keep reoffending and mm-hmm. songs about that and the kind of lifestyle that it that comes along with. Thank you. Thank you very much, Coach. It's been a absolute Thank you. pleasure. It has been an absolute, absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank you for housing me. <laughs> There's a song called Jesus, We Used to Be Friends. Well, the devil phoned his lawyer and he said, I've had enough of Jesus and his crooked friends fucking up my stuff. I don't care about the money, but you've got to clear my name. Every time someone down here fucks up, I get the blame. I didn't starve the Irish and I didn't gas the Jews. I didn't fuck those Indians, I guess that that was you. So tell me how this all ends. Jesus, we used to be. Jesus, we used to be friends. And you'll never hear a soldier scream as he runs into war. I've the devil on my side, it's him I'm killing for I've never raised an army, 
I never felt no guillotine But I was in the front row Cause I never liked your queen I didn't fill the slave ships Or rape the world for gold You can keep your bleeding heart Cause I've got rock and roll So tell me how this all ends Jesus we used to be Jesus we used to be friends Crucifies you when he hears what you have done. You've been picking on the fallen, just trying to have some fun. Behaving like the savior when you're just the boss's son. And the Lord will be my witness and he'll give my soul a break. He knows that I'm no apple, but I ain't the fucking snake. So tell me how this is all in. song called Jailbird. I got out last Christmas after serving all my time to a world that won't forgive me though I've long paid for my crime those prison guards were laughing as he opened up that gate, there was no one there to meet me, no reason to go straight. And it's hard to swing a hammer when all you've known's are gone. And you like that easy money, cause it buys you so much fun. I used to know this girl called Trouble, we used to shoot a little bit of coal. But you know those mixed up orphan girls Can never take a joke She was always milking honey Someone to treat her good I was just a junkie Saving up to be a hood Cause money buys you freedom And good drugs will get you friends May the road rise up to meet you Party, me your party never ends. I kind of hoped she'd come and meet me, for I took all the blame. But I hear that she's found Jesus. I hope she's born again. Brings a bottle And the good Lord feels the pain And guides you through these wicked streets Back to his arms again For life is overrated And death is just a lie Jesus says he loves her But so do I Where the lights never go out I heard somebody whisper And it sounded like your voice You said you'd love me till you die My little bird, don't you cry We'll sing a jailbird lullaby Sing a jailbird lullaby. Thanks for listening in, folks. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like and follow on social media. Just search for The Rebel Collective on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. 
Massive thanks to Declan McLaughlin from Derry for being this month's guest and thanks to the one and only coach for presenting the episode. Tune in next month for the Rebel Collective Christmas special. It promises to be a cracker. Cheers. Meet me at the pillar sun. Please meet me there at noon. I need you brave young Irishman. There's something we must do. This podcast is sponsored by Kelly's Bar, Oswald Street, Glasgow. Live Irish music every week from your favourite singers and bands. Check out the Kelly's social media page for more information.